We continue this morning with the gospel lesson from the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus has already earlier in the gospel spoken about the need to deny oneself, take up one's cross, to identify with, even he said, to be with me where I am, to be where the Master is. So he has, as he repeatedly does, he has made, if you will, martyrdom, losing our lives for his sake, central to Christian existence, to Christian discipleship. In fact, more than central, he's made it the very form of Christian existence, and here he returns to a variation on that theme. So the purpose of this text here in John 15 and into the beginning of chapter 16 is to create clarity in us. Clarity to brace our wills. The text is to give us sober realism. It's a sobering text. It also is there to put courage into your heart. To encourage us so that we might be faithful witnesses. So we'll make three points. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. Hatred, witness, warning. Hatred, witness, and warning. So first, hatred. Verse 18. Again, John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind, Jesus says, that it hated me first. Remember the root of the hatred you're experiencing, he's saying. The world here means, now this is generally true in John's gospel, it means like the system of things and people in in our fallenness, in our being bent against God. Basically, it means the fallen world order. It's important to get this because Jesus does not say every last person. He doesn't mean all people at all times and places will hate the church. But he is making a generalization. And the thing about generalizations is they're generally true. So the if here, if the world hates you, it's not really conditional. The whole text is assuming that the disciples will be hated. So Jesus starts with this. Hatred of the followers of Jesus, is inevitable. Welcome to Christianity. It's very sobering, right? I mean, nobody nobody wants or likes being hated. People want to be loved. It's an awful experience to be hated, and we naturally avoid it. And so it's good for us to be sort of adjusted Jesus is reminding us that the world in general will not think we are wonderful people with just a wonderful message, talking about wonderful things. They are not going to think that the gospel is just spectacular. Far from it. Far from it. In Jesus' day, he said, the time is coming when people will think they're doing a service to God when they kill you. 
right? There are segments of our own culture that think that basic Christian conviction make you a monster. It's not perhaps as pathological as what Jesus is addressing, but it's the essence of the thing. For the world, the hatred of God is natural. Now, if you, you know, you live in a Christian house and you have a Christian community and you're in a Christian church or in the West, this is easy to forget. But what does the Apostle Paul says? He says that the word of the cross is for the Jews a stumbling block and for the Greeks, it's folly. And that covers the whole world. Jews, Gentiles. Jews, non-Jews. Right, that's the attitude of the whole world to the core of your message. It's either ridiculously stupid or it's a moral disgrace. And so Jesus has these men, the nucleus of the church. He's about to leave. And he says to them, look, if the world hates you, I want you to remember this. It hated me first. So he's the creator of the world and the savior of the world and the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the world, even his own, hated him and rejected him. And so Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you see what's happening with me? What makes you think you're going to be treated any differently? Remember how they treated me, Jesus said. Right, this is a lesson drawn from Jesus' own ministry, which we often don't draw. Remember how they treated me. Calibrate your expectations accordingly. Now he goes on and he talks about why. He gives some reasons for this hatred. I'm going to give three of them here. The first one is our identity. Look at verse 19. If you belonged to the world, if you belonged to this fallen order of things... It would love you as its own. But I have chosen you out of the world. So he's saying to the disciples, look, you don't belong to the fallen order of things. We are, if you will, of the new world order, not the old. You do not belong to the world, Jesus says, but I've elected you or chosen you out of the world. So, when Jesus summons us, when he calls us, it's not simply that he's calling us to the adoption of a a new set of beliefs. Of course, that's true, right? But he's summoning us out of the fallen existence of things. I've called you out of the world. We did belong to the world, but now he says, you don't belong to the world. This is just part and parcel of what it means to belong to Jesus. The, the, the Heidelberg Catechism famously says in its first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So, There's been a fundamental shift in our location 
in our home, in the place we belong, and thus in our identity, and thus in our loyalty. And the world, Jesus says, will notice. Right? He says, if you belonged to it, if you belonged to it, it would love you as its own. But you do not belong to it. You do not belong. You've been elected out of the world. And that, Jesus says, you can see this at the end of verse 19. He said, that is why the world hates you. You know, this this hatred that's in view here is the basic reflex of the world to your calling to your baptismal identity in Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not an unlucky extra, right? It's a feature of Christianity, not a bug. It's a feature. It's built into the nature of things. I chose you, Jesus says. That is why the world hates you. So that the church then is like the tip of the spear as she goes into the world for the world's hatred of God. Verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name. So when the, to hate the body of Christ is to hate the Christ whose body it is. Whoever hates me, he says in verse 23, will hate my father as well. So you see there's this chain of hatred here. Hatred of the church means hatred of the son. Hatred of the son means hatred of the father. So they hate us, if you will, because of our basic identity, Jesus is saying to his disciples. The second reason for this inevitable hatred is our master, the master. Or here, what I really mean is the servant-master principle. The servant-master principle. Now, it's important to see something here. These passages have primarily to do, first and foremost, with Jesus' very disciples. Right, with the group of men that are in the room with him there, <clears throat> with them and their generation. But they do apply to the church throughout the ages. Right? They, they have a sort of analogy that allows us to read them and say, yes, this applies to us as well. Right? Jesus is not saying, look, the world hated me. It's going to hate the original first generation, but it's going to be fine with the rest of you. Right? We naturally, instinctively apply the text to ourselves. And to make this clear, Jesus generalizes here. Notice what he does. He gives us a sort of proverb, like an unfailing rule or a law. He says to them, remember what I told you, which means it's a rule or a law that we tend to forget, and he's obviously told it to them on numerous occasions. And he's going to tell it to them again now as he's about to leave. Remember this about Christianity. A servant... No servant is greater than his master. That's the, pro- that's the proverb. That's the rule. The servant-master principle guarantees that the faithful church will be hated. No servant is greater than the master. There's no reason, Jesus says to these men, for you to think as you go out into the world and preach the gospel, that you will face less hostility than your master did. 
you should expect roughly the same treatment. And Jesus presses the point here. Right? The logic of that principle, he does not let go. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There's a promise nobody likes to claim. That's nobody's life verse. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We are fantastic at filtering out the promises we don't like. And yet we have... 2,000 years of history to validate the promise. Sure, it's not universal, the hatred, but it is pervasive. And it's going on down to this very hour. And if you consider the hatred in the form of seduction, seduction to compromise and immorality and a whole bunch of other things, then the hatred looks well-nigh universal. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours too. Imagine starting your public teaching ministry, sitting there with Jesus, and he says, I wish your teaching ministry as much success as mine has had. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey your teaching as well. Of course, his teaching was not, generally speaking, obeyed. Now, many will be called out of the world into the church, but the world as such remains hostile, Jesus says. He's not saying we won't bear fruit. He's already told us otherwise. He says you've been chosen and given the Spirit to bear much fruit, to do even greater works than he's done. But the other side of that fruitfulness is in this text. Expect hostility. Expect hatred as you gather the harvest. Don't expect in general that you're going to be obeyed any more than he was obeyed. It's odd, right? He's the son of God. God in human flesh. The splendor of the father. And yet we somehow think that things are going to be different when we share it. So the third reason for this hatred is revelation. So our identity, the master principle, and revelation itself. Look at verse 22, where Jesus talks about his words. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty. Verse 24, he talks about his deeds. If I had not done these works, they would not be guilty. He's revealed the Father, and revelation, he says, provokes hostility. In the nature of the case, revelation provokes hostility because the gospel has a quarrel with us. Right? Because Jesus is a light which exposes, and the world lies in darkness. And his rejection was prophesied. You can see that in verse 25, where it says, They hated me without a cause or without a reason. Probably a reference to Psalm 69, which was our... Old Testament lesson. It's a text where David is suffering for righteousness. So think of it this way. The hatred that Jesus received was inevitable. It was in fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then Jesus turns around and says, but it won't be, generally speaking, different for my disciples. 
There was one servant in the early church who did not seek to be greater than his master. His name was Ignatius of Antioch. Now, we have seven of his letters. And Ignatius of Antioch knew, personally knew, this John who's writing this gospel. Which means Ignatius knew this text. Because he knew the author of the text. Ignatius dies a martyr in the very early part of the second century. So he understood what was being said here, perhaps better than most others. If it's our identity, if it's our position as servants of the master, and if it's God's revelation which guarantees hatred, that's what Jesus is saying here. Your identity, the servant-master principle, revelation itself guarantees the hatred of the church because it's rooted in the hatred of the Son and the hatred of the Father. Then, you're in a position to grasp what Ignatius says, which is this. The greatness of Christianity lies in its being hated by the world. That that also, that is on nobody's refrigerator, right? The greatness of Christianity lies in its being hated by the world. So that's hatred. The second point is witness. What do we do? Verse 26, when the advocate comes whom I will send from the Father, right, this is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, in the face of this hatred and opposition, I'm going to send the Spirit, the Advocate, your Helper. Right Now we see, sort of against the bleaker backdrop, why we need the Holy Spirit's power and His sovereign presence, His counsel. Right, The Spirit is given to the church so that we can bear witness in the teeth of this hostility which Jesus predicts. To help us advocate, to help us bear up under the world's resistance. And notice at the end of verse 26, it says of the Spirit, He will testify, He will bear witness about me. This is a beautiful thing. God continues, Jesus says, to show Himself through the Spirit to the world which has rejected the Son. The world rejects God. But let us be clear. God does not reject the world. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit continues to testify. And then verse 27 says, And you also must testify. You also must testify. I want to say a couple things about the Spirit here. The first is this. The Spirit is infinite, holy God. He stands over the church as her Lord, not in the church as some kind of impersonal power. Right? The Spirit is the breath of the risen Christ, and the Spirit creates the church. That is why in the Apostles' Creed, the church is placed underneath or after the Spirit. 
Right? This is why the church confesses the faith this way. I believe in the Holy Spirit, comma, the Holy Catholic Church. There's a reason for the order. But second, notice this. The Spirit testifies, Jesus says. You know, it's not just that you testify. Our testimony would, would be no good if the Spirit was not himself already testifying. Nor is it simply that the Spirit fills you so that you can testify. That's not what Jesus says here. He says the Spirit himself is testifying in the world. And then you also are to testify. You want to sort of join into the Spirit's testimony. And the third thing to note is that when the Spirit fills us, we also testify. So what are we doing as the church, right? We are testifying to the Spirit's testimony to Jesus. That's the church's mission. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Testify to the Spirit who testifies to Christ. You're called to witness, to proclaim the gospel with gladness and joy, certain that you will not only bear fruit, but that you'll bear much fruit in the face of the world's hostility. And the final point is this warning. You see this in chapter 16. Jesus says this, all, I have told, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. So again, I've said all of these things to you, Jesus says, so that you don't abandon the faith. The text is to arm you so that you're not surprised or deflected or scandalized. It's very important that the church has realistic expectations if she's not to fall away. And initially, at least, the the hatred comes from very high-minded religious types. They'll put you out of the synagogue like they did to the blind man, he tells his disciples. And eventually, those who kill you will think they're offering a service to God, as Saul of Tarsus did. Other ways will be invented, of course. You can see many of them in the book of Revelation. The previous century, by most estimates, saw 30 million Christian martyrs. I have told you this, Jesus says, so that when you see these things, when they come, you'll remember I warned you. That's why the text exists, to calibrate our expectations So let us conclude. I'm going to make three application points here in conclusion. I'll call them caveats. Expectations. And mission. So first and importantly, a couple of caveats, right? One, God can make even our enemies be at peace with us. Right? Proverbs says that. Now, Jesus is not envisioning that situation, but sometimes in God's kindness, that's the situation we have. And we are not conflict mongers. If we have peace with unbelievers, praise God, we rejoice. Second, 1 Peter tells us we're not to be persecuted for our own rudeness, our own stupidity, or our own hypocrisy, or our own evil doing. Sometimes we provoke this stuff. That's not what's in view here either. 
And third, third caveat here is where the gospel has influenced cultures as it has done in the West, obviously there's going to be less of this murderous rage. And we praise God for that. But Jesus is saying, inasmuch as the world remains the world, it will be hostile. And its persecution and its seduction can take many, many, many forms, even in the West, right? So that's some caveats. The second point is expectations. We saw why Jesus was speaking this way to us this morning. Right? He's trying to calibrate your expectations. And the New Testament is full of things like Jesus says here. Second Timothy 3, everyone, everyone, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no exception. Right? Philippians 1, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, faith is a gift, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is every much a gift as faith. And it's been granted to the church to suffer. 1 Thessalonians 3, you should not be unsettled by your trials. You were destined for them. When we were with you, we kept telling you, Paul said, that we shall be persecuted. And finally, our New Testament lesson from 1 Peter 4, which is a wonderful summary of this text, where Peter says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening. We sort of get this backwards, right? We think non-persecution is the normal thing. Persecution is the strange thing. Peter goes on and says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Jesus is saying, you're going to be called into the mystery of my own sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad, Peter says, when his glory is revealed. Sufferings, glory. Suffering belongs to the age, beloved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the sufferings of this age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 4. There are two modes of existence. This age in which you will suffer. That age in which you will be glorified. So there's there's an expectation here that's very important to get. And then finally, mission. Right? Because the text is about, Jesus is sending these men out into this world. And it means for us that mission, that following this Christ, is cruciform. Meaning, it takes the shape of the cross. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me. You know what he never says? Take up your resurrection and follow me. You ever 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 ask yourself, why is that? Because there's no way to get to resurrection without the cross. And because in this age, Paul says, we know the power of his resurrection in being conformed to his death. The mystery of resurrection life itself 
for the Christian is found in conformity to Christ's very death. Take up your cross and follow me, and then be empowered by the Spirit to go out and testify. Leslie Newbegin was a great 20th century missionary, theologian, Anglican theologian. He put it this way, and this really distills the essence of this text. This is Newbegin. The promise of the Spirit here is not made to a church which is powerful or successful in a worldly sense. It is made to a church which shares the tribulation and humiliation of Jesus. Right? Remember, no servant is greater than his master. He continues, This is a tribulation which arises from faithfulness to the truth in a world which is dominated by the lie. The promise is that exactly in this tribulation and humiliation, the mighty Spirit of God will bear witness to the crucified Jesus as the Lord and giver of life. So I leave you with Ignatius' words. It is the greatness of Christianity that it is hated by the world. And it is the greatness of our advocate, right, that we don't cower, that we don't run, that we don't retreat, that we are sent and we testify. So be forewarned. Expect hatred, expect indifference, expect resistance. Be filled with the Spirit and testify. Because the Christ who is now raised has not rejected the world which has rejected him. Amen.